is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. If you didn't keep your Bible open there, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 9 uh, through 12 this morning. You're, you're going to... I hope you keep your Bible open so you can follow along. We're not going to read all of the the text, and uh, I read you part of it. I'm going to read part of it this morning as we continue. As we've uh, seen so far, Isaiah has been tasked by God to call people to repentance. And yet he's been told by God ahead of time that they're not going to listen. Uh, God knows they won't, but it's not because it's not because he knows uh, let, me, let, me just, let me just use it. I got confused with my notes. God, God knows that they won't, but it's not because God is causing the future to be as it will be. In other words, God knows they won't, but the future could be different. When, uh, when God sent Jonah to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, remember the, the big country that's, that's threatening Israel or is going to take Israel away and is threatening Judah, he sent Jonah to that country a number of years earlier, before they were the superpower that they are now. And he said to them, in 40 days, Noah said, God says, in 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. And yet in 40 days, they weren't destroyed because they repented and uh, they turned back. So was God lying then when he said that? No, he wasn't lying. It's a mystery how God can interact with a changing future and yet know the future. That's a mystery. How can God interact actively with the future as it's unfolding or the present as it's unfolding and yet know the future? That's, that's a mystery. Now, some people suggest that for God to know the future, God has to cause the future. And they posit the mystery in this place. They say, God is decreeing everything that happens. God is the causal behind, the cause behind all the future. But it's a mystery how God can be the cause of all that's evil and not be evil himself. That's a mystery. We don't understand how that works, that God can be the cause of all things and not be guilty of, of evil. Other people agree with them and they say, you know, if God knows the future, then God must have caused it. And by the way, to, to somehow excuse God from, from the guilt of evil, they put a layer in between and they say, well, man is doing what he wants, but God is controlling his, uh, his desires down here. So God, man's doing what he wants. But it's, to, to me, it doesn't save God from being the, the culprit of evil if you make him ultimately the one who's responsible for the desires that bring about, about evil. And so some people say the same thing. They say, well, you know, if God, if God knows the future, he must cause the future. And so therefore, God doesn't know the future because God's not evil, right? So therefore, if evil's in the future, God's, God doesn't know it. And so that's how they deal with uh, the statement that for God to know the future, uh, he must be the cause behind, behind that. Now, I want you to know that I believe both are biblically wrong. 
I believe that God absolutely knows the future. In fact, one of the things he says in the Old Testament is, you can know I'm God because I tell you what's going to happen in the future. So God knows the future, but he is not the cause of all things. And he's not the cause, especially of, of evil. And I want to suggest to you, and I'm doing this for a purpose because you know, if, if you're into theology, you're going to be confronted by these things. I, I want you to understand that the mystery lies not in how God can be the cause or the decreer of all things and still not be guilty of evil. In other words, every rape he's decreed, every the Holocaust, he's, he's been the cause behind it, but yet he's not guilty of evil. We don't understand. That's a mystery. Listen, everyone, the mystery doesn't lie there. The mystery lies in how God can actively work with unfolding present and yet at the same time know the future. And I don't know how he does that, but he's God, and that's where we need to posit the mystery. So God tells Isaiah, I know they're not going to listen to you, but at the same time, I want you to know that this is you are actively preaching for, for them to listen. Chapter 7 through 12 uh, has has one two themes actually. In fact, the whole book of Isaiah, I've told you this already, has two themes: judgment and then promise. Judgment from God and then this promise of of, of something wonderful, right? And uh, in chapter seven through twelve, we have the impending judgment of God or the impending discipline of God, if we prefer that term, since these are God's people. The impending discipline of God on on the south, on the north, and on the south. On the north, it doesn't seem like they are offered an opportunity for repentance. It seems like it's a done deal. I mean, it's already coming. They've they've passed the point of no return, and God's discipline is coming. But for Judah, there's an opportunity for repentance. That's one theme we find in in uh, Isaiah, but that's the theme we're going to find in 7 through 12, and particularly in 9 through 12 today. But the other theme is this promise of a glorious future. And again, you find this all throughout the book of Isaiah, but we're going to find it here in 9 through 12 in particular, the promise of a glorious future. So I want to look at the two themes again. I know we've already talked about them, and this is where I'm asking you to pray for me because they're going to come up over and over and over again, right? But we're going to start with a theme of the, the impending judgment. And, and I want you to notice two realities about God's judgment or two realities about God's discipline, and these do apply to us. Here's the first one. Only true repentance stays the disciplinary hand of God. I want to say it again a different way. Only us turning from our sin in, in repentance, changing our mind and changing our ways. Uh, only repentance can, can change God's commitment to disciplining us if he's on that track. All right. So the message uh, for Israel and Judah in 9.8 through 10.4, which I read you a little while ago, as you probably noted, is divided into four parts. And each part ends with that statement that I, that I singled out. In all this, God's anger has not turned away and his hand is still raised to strike. Here's what Isaiah was saying, or here's what God was saying. In all the things that I did to bring about your repentance, none of it worked. And my hand is still poised to discipline you. 
So God says, I destroyed your cities. And this is what you said. We'll build them back brick for brick. I had your trees cut down. You said, we'll plant new ones and we'll grow them all over again. I destroyed your political leadership and your religious leadership. And you were just as godless as you ever were. I burned the land and you still fought one another and you still had no compassion on one another. And then God kind of ends it at the beginning of 10. And he says, despite all that I've got done, injustice still thrives in your land. You still could care less about the poor, about the widow, about the fatherless. You don't care about them. You're still filled with injustice. All that's left is for you to either be carried away as a prisoner of Assyria or for you to die at their hands. In other words, I'm not turning back my discipline or my judgment because you didn't listen when I kept seeking your repentance, when I kept seeking for you to repent. The Bible's really clear, everyone. God is merciful. I mean, the Bible's kind of, I mean, it's this is just a major theme. God is merciful and he longs to show mercy. And if you're willing to repent, he's willing to wash you as white as snow. But the Bible's equally clear that God disciplines his people. God disciplines his sons and daughters. And if we don't repent, then he will discipline us. And this passage in Isaiah 9 through the beginning of 10 makes this point really clear. Unless we repent, it is necessary for God to discipline us. Unless we repent, we can expect that God is going to discipline us. And so here's what I want to say to you. If you are walking in sin today, you need to repent because unless you repent, you will bring about God's discipline on your life. If you belong to him, you will, you will cause him. You will force his hand to bring about the discipline that he said he will bring if you are one of his and you continue to walk in sin. I mean, this is a great reminder to us that we cannot continue to just ignore what God's told us if we belong to him. We must walk in obedience to him. And please don't misunderstand. I am not talking about how we enter into a right relationship with God. We enter into a right relationship with God by faith, not by our works or activities. But having said that, if we walk in sin, in unrepentance, and God is nudging us, and he is, he's bringing things against us to wake us up, and we refuse to repent, we will bring about his discipline on us, even as Israel and Judah did. Here's the, second, here's the second reality about God's discipline. It's this. God uses the world we're living in. He uses real life situations to bring discipline upon us. He brings the world we're living in. At the moment we're living in it, he brings those things and he uses those things in discipline against us. Chapter 10, verse 5. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in which hands... The staff in their hands is my wrath. I will send him, talking about the king of Assyria. I will send him against a godless nation, talking about Israel. I will command him to go against a people destined for my rage, to take spoils, to plunder, and to trample them down like clay in the streets. God says, my plan is to use Assyria to discipline, even punish his people. Now, God acknowledges that that's not a serious plan. That's not a serious thought. So look at chapter 10, verse 10. 
Here's what God says about the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria says, As my hand ceased, seized the kingdoms of worthless images, kingdoms whose idols exceeded those of Jerusalem and Samaria, and as I did to Samaria and its worthless images, will I not also do to Jerusalem and its idols? Now years earlier, the king of Assyria had responded when God sent Jonah. God sent Jonah to him and he said, listen, the king of the king or the God of Judah says in 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. And the king of Assyria at that time listened to Jonah, the prophet, the people, they put on sackcloth, cloth and ashes. Remember this, right? And and Jonah was so upset that God didn't follow through on what he promised he was going to do to it. This is before they're a superpower. If this is the same king, I must confess this morning as I was going over my notes, I realized I never looked up to see if it's the same king. I don't think it is. It's years later. It's decades later. So I don't think it's the same king. This king says, look what I just did to, to Israel. Look what I'm going to do to Judah. I mean, I've squashed all these other kingdoms and their idols. I, you know, the idols of Judah are more worthless than anyone else. I'm going to crush. I'm going to crush them is what he says. He says, I'm going to decimate. I decimated Israel. I'm going to decimate Judah. And, um, but God at the same time is saying to Israel, but he's my instrument. So God is saying he's his instrument. He's bringing about his discipline on them. But the king of Assyria says, I'm doing this to them. So we have a quandary here. What's the quandary? So the quandary is this. Is is God making the king of Assyria do what the king of Assyria is doing? Or is God using the king of Assyria in what he is intending to do to Israel? That's the quandary. And Christians disagree. Christians disagree. We've disagreed for millennia. We'll continue to disagree till Jesus comes. Some Christians believe that God is decreeing and directing and and causing the king of Assyria to come against Israel. Others say God in his omniscience is using what he knows about Assyria as a disciplinary rod by him. And though God certainly does and can, listen carefully, God certainly does and and at times compel and even cause people to do things that he desires. I fall in the camp that says God mostly uses the intentions of people to bring about his disciplines in the world or his, his compelling us or his awakening us. He's basically using what others are planning instead of causing them to do those things. But regardless, here's here's the truth that I want you to see. Here's the truth that I want you to see. God is going to use the current events of that day to get their attention. God's going to use the world in which they live to get their attention. Whether he's the cause of it or whether he's using what he knows in his omniscience, you know, and the fact that he knows all things, um, it doesn't matter. The point is, I want you to see that he uses the world we live in to discipline us. So this is what this means. Let me get really specific. This is what this means. Um, Your work lets you go. That may be God's using circumstances in your life to call you to repentance or to get your attention or to wake you up. You have a neighbor who makes your life miserable. You have a thief who breaks in and steals your necessities. You have a house fire that burns your house to the ground. Those are everyday things. God uses everyday things like that as disciplines in our life to bring us to a place of repentance. 
Now the hard part, listen, here's the hard part. The hard part is that not every difficult thing like that is really God trying to get our attention, right? To discipline us. Remember in John chapter 9, there's the blind guy who's who's born blind and his disciples asked Jesus, they said, is he born blind because of this person did wrong or is he did born blind because this person did wrong? And Jesus says, he's not born blind because anybody did wrong. He's born blind, Jesus says, so that the glory of God might be displayed in him, right? And, and, and so it, it's not every bad thing that happens to us is God seeking to get our attention. Not everything is coming as a disciplinary thing, causing us to, or saying to us, repent lest my discipline be greater. Not, not everything is like that. Some things are to radiate the glory of God in our lives. But hard times definitely can come against us because God is trying to get our attention. Because my heart has become hard and I need a wake-up call to see that I need to repent or, or I need to reflect on God's grace in my life. And so he brings them about or allows them to happen, but they're coming. And he says, they're from my hand. They're from my hand that you might hear my voice. And one of the reasons that I don't believe that, that God is the cause behind all the evil that happens to us or the bad things people do is because God, in this case, says, I'm going to destroy Assyria. After they have done what I want them to do in Israel, I will judge them and destroy them for their wickedness. In chapter 10, verse 12, and actually all throughout the rest of chapter 10, which we're not going to read, but the Lord basically says, here's chapter 10, verse 12. But when the Lord finishes all his work against Mount Zion in Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for his arrogant acts and the proud look in his eyes. For he said, I have done this by my own strength and wisdom, for I am clever. The king of Assyria said, hey, this is me. Look what I've done, right? He even goes on to say, it's like robbing eggs from a nest. And Israel didn't even chirp when I, when I stole their eggs and I plundered their, their treasures. God says, I am going to punish Assyria for their arrogance because the supreme sovereign is basically saying, you know, unless if I don't want you to do this, you cannot do this. You, you cannot do this. So, you know, I, I'm going to judge you for your arrogance. God says in verse 15, does an axe exalt itself over the one who chops with it? Does a saw magnify itself above the one who saws with it? Here's what God says he's going to do to Assyria. Verse 33, look, the Lord of armies will chop off the branches with a terrifying power and the tall trees will be cut down and the high trees felled. And uh, he is clearing the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon with its majesty will fall. I mean, that's metaphor. That's metaphor for God's going to cut down Assyria. And how will God discipline Assyria? Everybody knows, right? He's going to bring a, a kingdom that's growing to the northeast of them called Babylon. And he's going to bring Babylon down and Babylon's going to destroy Assyria. And then later on, God's going to use Babylon not just to destroy Assyria, but to destroy Judah. He's not going to use Assyria. Syria is their discipline. Syria is their call to wake up. When they don't wake up and they don't repent, he's going to bring Babylon down. And Habakkuk's going to say, Lord, how long are you going to tolerate this, this terrible sin in Judah? And God says, well, I'm about to deal with it. I'm going to send Babylon and they're going to, they're going to cut off my people in Judah. And he says, whoa, 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 how can you use Babylon? They're such a wicked people. God says, well, I'm going to judge them too. 
So uh, God, I don't think God's causing these people to do it because he in turn is going to end up judging them in the end. So there's two themes, chapter 7 through 12, 9 through 12 specifically today. The two themes are the impending judgment. And there's two realities for us. Unless we repent, we're setting ourselves up for God's discipline when he nudges us and he gets our attention and he allows things in our life to wake us up and get us to see we're wrong. If we don't respond in repentance, we are asking God to discipline us and to judge us. Because we are his people. I'm not talking about us as Americans. I'm not talking about Ukrainians as Ukrainians. I'm not talking about Russians as Russians. I'm talking about us, the people of God. Whether we find ourselves in Russia, Ukraine, or the United States, or Mexico, or any other country. When we're walking in sin and rebellion, we're setting ourselves up for God's discipline. Because every son he receives, he disciplines. So repentance can stay the hand of God's discipline. And if you're in sin this morning, repent. Repent. Turn back from your sin. Oh, I mean, none of us know. You hide it. But, but God knows. Repent. And the other truth, the other reality is he uses the things of the world around us to bring about that disciplinary work. Now, here's the second theme. And I'm going to go quickly through this, but hopefully this will be, if that's the heavy, this is the positive, right? If that's the, if that's the oh, man, I feel beat up. This is going to be hopefully the part that lifts us up. And it's about our glorious future. And, and there's, in, in chapters 9 through 12, I'm going to suggest to you there are four, four positive realities about our glorious future. And you're going to know them all, but let me share them with you nonetheless. Here's the first one. The glorious future will be led by an extraordinary king. By an awesome king. Chapter 9 begins like this. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at the harvest time and as they rejoice with the dividing of spoils. Verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and the dominion. his dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Hey Amen. There's that Christmas passage, right? There's that Christmas passage. In chapter 8, it ends, if you remember, with, with basically you're in crisis and you have an opportunity at the end of 8, it says to look to God or look to your crisis. And they looked to their crisis and all they saw was doom and, and darkness instead of looking to God. They, all they saw was doom and darkness. 9 begins like this. You know, into that land filled with gloom and darkness, there's going to be a bright light that's going to come and great joy that's going to come back to that land. And if we go to Matthew 4, Matthew takes this passage in Isaiah chapter 9 and he says, Jesus is the great light. Jesus is the one who is the light of the world. Jesus, John the apostle comes in and says, Jesus is the, the light that came into the world and Israel rejected him. But he was the light that came into the darkness. Jesus is the light. And so, you know, and when Jesus came, he brought great joy. He was the son that was to be born, the child that was to be given to us. 
In Isaiah, Isaiah's, what, 800 years prior to Jesus? And he's, he's what way he'd be looking? I guess he'd be looking this way, if that's the future. He's, he's looking that away to the coming of Jesus. We're looking, we're looking this way. We're looking back on Jesus because the Bible tells us he was the son that was given us. And now what I want to do is let's go through what Isaiah says would be true of this son that would be given to us, this extraordinary king. And let me just point out the things real quickly. He would be our king. It says our ruler, the government would be on his shoulders. He's going to be our ruler forever. He would be the wonderful counselor. He's the one that counsels us. That word can also be translated comforter. He's the one that's comforting Nancy and David and all of you that have lost loved ones here in the last last couple of weeks. He's, he's the wonderful counselor. He gives us, he tells us he tells us the truth and he tells us what to do. He's the mighty God. I mean, this, this son that to be given us was to be the mighty God. Some people say, well, that's not the almighty God. It's the mighty God. It's, uh, I, I believe it's absolutely the same thing. He's going to be the mighty God. He would be the everlasting father. How is it that Jesus is the everlasting father? Isn't the father and Jesus different? They are, they're, yet they're one being. I think here God's trying to say that Jesus is, is God. He would be the prince of peace. In verse, he would bring peace to the world. He would, and in fact, now he, he's the prince of peace and he's brought us peace with God. He's brought us peace with God, peace with each other. Hopefully, we love one another as the people of God. He's brought peace between us. And he's going to bring peace to the world in a big way in the future. He would be the fulfillment of the promise to King David that his son would reign as king forever. His kingdom would be one of righteousness and justice. Here's what Paul says about Jesus' kingdom. His kingdom, the kingdom of God, is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. His kingdom would last forever. The kingdom of Jesus began when Jesus came. And he's been the king. He rules in our hearts and his kingdom is expanding. His kingdom is filling the earth. We're coming from every corner now. Every nation on the earth. Every people group. We, the church, are taking the gospel message everywhere. And the church is coming from all over the world. And, uh, and so we're filling the globe with that promise. Jump to chapter 11. He continues on with this extraordinary king. In chapter 11, here's what Isaiah says. And again, remember, he's, he's looking to it. He, 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 this is what God's giving him. We're looking back on it. And he says, Then a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse, and the branches from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. Here, here Isaiah says more about this extraordinary king. The Spirit of God would rest on him. So when Jesus is baptized, the Spirit of God in the form of a dove comes and rests upon, upon the Lord Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, it says that Jesus did everything he did, anointed by the Holy Spirit. He would be wise and have understanding and be filled with knowledge. At the age of 12, nobody spoke like Jesus did. Remember, they were astounded at this little boy, 12 years old, teaching the, the priest in the temple. No one taught like Jesus. They said of him, he, he teaches as one with great authority. Isaiah predicts that he'd be a counselor. He already predicted that. He would be strong. He would operate in the fear of the Lord. And that doesn't mean the terror of God. That means he operates in the worship and the awe and the respect of the Lord. 
That's what, that's what it means when it says to fear the Lord. The Lord doesn't want us to cower as we might cower from a father who uses the belt too much and whoops us and hurts us. That's not what fear means. Fear means we respect and honor and we worship and we, and, and, and we just hold him in awe. He would hold the Lord in awe. And I thought about this. In the temple, Jesus clears out the money changers and he says, You have turned my father's house into a den of thieves when it was always supposed to be a house of prayer. And this is the fear of the Lord was on him. And again, he would reign with righteousness and justice. He would be all about what's just and all about what's right. And Isaiah told us our glorious future, our glorious future, it includes this extraordinary king. And Jesus is our extraordinary king. And he's alive today. If you're wondering, if you've got any questions, Jesus lives today. He's, a, he's our extraordinary king. He's alive. He's seated in heaven. And he's waiting for the day. I don't know if he's waiting for it or, or how it works. But there is a day set when God the Son will step back onto our planet. And he will rule the world. He will be our extraordinary king. And I long for his return. I, I long for his return. Here's the second reality, and the, the other ones are shorter. The glorious future that he's promised us from Isaiah and other places includes the defeat of our oppressor. Go back to chapter 9, verse 3. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at the harvest time. And they rejoice with dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah promises that in our glorious future, the oppressor would be defeated and his yoke would be removed. And it'd be just like when God defeated the armies of Midian. The oppressor would be removed and there'd be no more war and we would burn our boots of war and our bloody clothes of war. We would burn them as fuel for ourselves. Now, I think any Israelite reading this for 800 centuries or so may have thought, What's well, talking about? It's talking about all these people that have ruled us, right? And when we get to Jesus' time, Rome—that's what they thought. But I don't think that's the oppressor God had in mind. I think the oppressor that God had in mind there, when He said that in our glorious future the oppressor would be removed, I think He was talking about our adversary. I think He was talking about Satan. Jesus defeated the adversary during His temptation in the wilderness, but He gave him the death blow when He crushed His head on the cross. He, he, he destroyed him there. When Jesus died for us, the penalty of sin was and sin and death was met. And, and God promised us a resurrection. And, and Jesus defeated that oppressor. Maybe the oppressor isn't Satan. Maybe the oppressor is death itself, right? Death is always oppressing us. King Jesus defeated what we fear the most. And what we fear the most, everyone, is dying. Here's what the author of Hebrews said. Chapter 2, verse 14. We are the people of flesh and blood. That is why Jesus became one of us. He died to destroy the devil, the adversary, who had power over death. But he also died to rescue all of us who live each day in fear of dying. Our glorious future removes the oppressor. 
And maybe it's Satan, the adversary. Maybe it's death and the fear of death. I mean, it's more than that too. Look at verse four of chapter 11. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. He will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. Here Isaiah says that with the words of his mouth, Jesus will destroy all his enemies. He'll kill all the wicked. That's what it says right there. He'll kill the wicked with the command of his lips. One day God's going to destroy all his enemies and there will be no more wicked. Here's Psalm 37. A little while and the wicked person will be no more. Though you look for him, he'll be no more. But the humble will inherit the land and they will enjoy abundant prosperity. There'll be no more oppressors. When, when Jesus comes, there'll be no more. God is going to destroy them. They're going to vanish like the smoke and they're going to melt like the, like the wax. Uh, Psalm 39, I believe. First Corinthians 15, Paul says, Jesus will abolish all his enemies, putting them under his feet. And here's what he says in verse 26. The last enemy to be abolished will be death. For God has put everything under his feet. And when everything is subject to Jesus, then God will be all in all. So the glorious future that awaits us is an extraordinary one where we have this incredible king, but also where there'll be no more oppressor, no more wicked people, no more evil, no more Satan adversary, no more fighting against us, no more war. The third reality is the glorious future includes a renewed paradise. God created a world in paradise, but paradise was lost. Utopia was lost. The Bible of God, the promise of God in his Bible is that the future will be reclaimed and recovered. Look at verse 6, chapter 11. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The, gaff and the, the calf and the young lion and the fattened calf will be together and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den, and they will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain. For the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. And on that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, and the nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. Man. We, we've, already seen, we've already seen how incredible Jesus is, right? He's the pr Prince of Peace. And here it tells us, man, there's coming a day when the, when the world will be renewed and recover the peace of the utopia that God created it in. Well, you know, we call it nature today when, when carnivore animals kill other animals. But that's all going to be changed. The carnivore animals like the leopard and the lion and the bear, they'll not kill. They'll become herbivores. And it seems like, you know, I know some of y'all are going to object, but it seems like we might become herbivores too. So go eat your steaks now. The, the, the cobra and other venomous snakes will be harmless in the kingdom realized. And the world will look to King Jesus. Did you see that? He'll be the banner for the nations. He'll be the one who rules over all the earth and over all of us. And the knowledge of him will fill the earth like the waters fill the ocean. And more than ever, we know how much water is in the ocean, right? And the, the knowledge of Jesus will fill the world like that. Revelation 22, God says this to us, verse 22. 
excuse me, verse 1. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the lambs will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their forehead. Night will be no more. People will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them lamp light, and they will reign forever and ever. I, I think this vision represents real truth, not necessarily reality. Uh, but as it's going to be. But notice in the vision, the real truth, the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden is back. The tree of life, which was meant to give Adam and Eve eternal life. Remember, it was removed so they wouldn't live forever. The tree is back. It's back because God is restoring eternal life. God is lifting the curse. Did you hear that? Back in the text, it says he's going to lift the curse. I can't find it now. He's going to lift the curse that was on. What's the curse? What's talking about the curse of death? It's talking about the curse against the ground, the curse of childbearing. God's going to lift the curse. And God forevermore will be our light. He, he's forevermore going where his name will be written on our forehead, right? And we're going to see his face. We're going to be like Peter and James and John and even Paul, I guess we could say. We'll get to see his face. We'll get to look on his face. And then finally, this glorious future will be populated by God's people, those whose faith is in him. In chapters 10 and 11, in two places uh, through Isaiah, God says that on that day, a remnant will return. Let's look at chapter 10, verse 20. On that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on the one who struck them, but they will faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God, Israel. Even if your people were as numerous as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction has been decreed. Justice overflows. For throughout the land, the Lord God of armies is carrying out a destruction that was decreed. And because so many are going to be destroyed, Isaiah says only a remnant is going to return. But they're going to return. In chapter 10, Isaiah predicts that at the end of the judgment, a remnant will come. I, I, think, I think he really means that at the end of Assyrian and Babylonian judgments, a remnant, a small group of Israelites will return to, uh, to their kingdom, to that land. And though I think the passage in chapter 10 means to speak primarily to that, it's this passage that Paul will lift and put in Romans chapter 9 and say that though the Israelites be as numbered as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them are going to come to Jesus. Only a small number are going to put their hope in Jesus. But in chapter 11, look at chapter 11. After the promise of God's, this is all part of that passage where we see the extraordinary king, paradise renewed, and then it's followed with this. On that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people who survived from Assyria, Egypt, 
Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the coast and the islands of the west. And he will lift up a banner for the nations and gather the dispersed of Israel. And he will collect the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Ephraim's envy will cease. Judah's harassing will end. Ephraim will no longer be envious of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. But they will swoop down on the Philistine flank on the west. Together they will plunder the people on the east, and they will extend the power over Edom and, and Moab. The Ammonites will be their subjects. The Lord will divide the Gulf of Suez, and he will wave his hand over the Euphrates with his mighty wind. He will divide, split it into seven streams, letting people walk through on foot. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will survive from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So here's where some of you are going to disagree with me, and it is absolutely okay that we disagree. Many, many of, of you will apply this symbolically to the regathering of the Jews one day into an earthly Jewish kingdom. Uh, that's probably what you've been taught, and that's, that's what you hold to, and that's, that's fine. But I want you to know that I don't think that's what this is talking about. I think this is talking about when Jesus comes and he raises us all back to life to be a part of his eternal kingdom. The visions represent, uh, you know, remember we talked about the, the visions representing reality and then a real truth. Remember that? And we said that a vision can represent a real reality and a real truth. But I made the statement, and I hold to it, that I think so many visions represent a real truth, but not necessarily a real reality. And in this particular case, most everybody thinks it's a real truth that it's going to be national Israel that's going to return to their land, but everything else is symbolic. It's not, not real. The Suez isn't going to be divided necessarily into seven tribes. It's not going to be about the return from Assyria. It's going to be in the future when God's going to bring all of Israel back to a national kingdom. I, I really believe this passage here, and so just entertain this thought, okay? Just entertain this thought that, that this is about the day when the extraordinary king steps onto the planet, and the extraordinary king defeats the enemy forever. And the extraordinary king returns paradise to what it used to be and was going to be. And this is him telling us that from the four corners of the earth, everyone agrees with this. When it says Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, the coast and the islands of the west, that, that really what Isaiah is saying is from the north, the south, the east, in the West, God's going to bring all of Israel back into the promised land, right? And uh, so we all, we all agree that that's what he's saying. But I think God's pointing to a different Israel. I don't think he's pointing to national Israel here. Let me see if I can make my case. Uh, and I'm almost finished, so just hang in there emotionally with me a few more minutes. Let me see if I can make my case. In Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about how, what an ad advantage it is to Israel to, to have the covenants and to have been the people that they were. And, uh, but then they're not all coming to, to Jesus, right? They're not all coming to follow Jesus. And, and then Isaiah makes this statement, not all of Israel is Israel. Not all of Israel, not all of biological Israel is God's true Israel, is what he's saying there. 
There's two different Israels. There's a national Israel. And then there is an Israel that is by faith. There's an Israel that is by covenant. There's an Israel that actually loves God and follows after God. And he makes his case by saying this, not only is not all of national Israel God's true Israel, not even all of Abraham's children have been part of God's national Israel. So you take Abraham, remember it was only his son Isaac that was part of national Israel. And then it's not just Isaac, it's, it's his two sons, Esau and Jacob, it's only Jacob who is part of national Israel. And, and so Paul's making the case, it's never been about genetics. It's never been about that you are the offspring of Abraham. God chose Abraham to bring forth a nation that would bring forth the Messiah who would bless all the nations. But the true Israel of God has always been anyone and everyone who puts their faith in God and faith in Jesus. That's, that's, that's always been the true Israel. It's always been them, right? And, and, so, and so Paul says in the book of Galatians that we are the sons of Abraham as Gentiles. We're not truly sons of Abraham biologically, but we are sons of Abraham by faith. I mean, as Abraham was a man of faith, we are men and women of faith. It's not about genetics. And what I believe that God is pointing Isaiah to here and pointing us to this morning is a day when God's going to raise up all of his sons and daughters from all corners of the earth. He'll raise us up every generation and we will walk into the kingdom of God and we will be the people, both Jews and Gentiles, everyone who has put our faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He will, we will all be inheritance of the kingdom that's to come. Paul told the church at Thessalonica, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the archangel's voice with the trump of God and the dead in Jesus will rise first. And then we who are still alive, who are left, we caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This glorious future in the paradise of God is for all those who have responded in faith to the work of God in Jesus. And listen to me, it's Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. It's the young and the old, the educated and the not so educated, the Westerner, the non-Westerner, whatever your gender, whatever your race, whatever your ethnicity, it's for everyone who puts their faith in the Lord. One day, here's the promise of our glorious future. Here's the promise of our glorious future. On that day, God will raise his people from the dead and from the four corners of the earth, he will invite everybody to come and be a part of his kingdom from every generation, from every era, and we will skip forth into this glorious future that God has for us. Now, Isaiah ends this section on this crisis in Judah. He ends this section um, on this crisis with chapter 12. This, look at your Bibles. I'm going to read it to us. I'm not going to really comment on it. I'm just going to read it to us. On that day, on that day, on what day? I think the day that we've just talked about, the glorious future is realized. I will give thanks to you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. You have comforted me. 
Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust him and not be afraid. For the Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. On that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make his works known among the people. Declare that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, citizen of Zion, for the Holy One of Israel is among you in his greatness. Man, I'm telling you, I think Isaiah is giving us a song of praise for the day Jesus comes and his kingdom is is fully realized. One day our faith will be sight. We're going to get to see. We're going to get to touch. We're going to get to hug and kiss Jesus. And we will give him thanks. And we will exalt his name. And we will cry out, the Holy One is among us. He's come to make his residence with us. One last text from Revelation. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him, and they'll see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night and day be no more. People will need no, no need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So there is nothing left for me to do this morning than this. And that is to invite you to repent and receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior. I mean, that's it, everyone. There's nothing left. There's nothing more than that. If you have not received Christ, you please, why would you not? You say, well, well, I don't know that that's true, Jimmy. I don't know that anything you said today about this glorious future is going to come to pass. I don't know if it's true or not. Well, you know, I walk by faith. I have this conviction, this full assurance that it's true, that I base upon the person of Jesus, his teaching and his resurrection. So that's all I can say to you. And I would, I would say to you this morning, put your hope in Jesus. Put your hope in Jesus. Receive him this morning. Listen, just because you grew up in a church, even if you grew up in this church, it doesn't mean you've done that. It doesn't mean that you've decided, I will follow Jesus. I I am following him. I'm receiving him. I'm inviting you this morning to do that. I said there was nothing left to do but that, but there's one more thing to do, and that is to call you to live for him in this moment in history, at this time in your life. Live for him. Live for him. Choose to walk in holiness. Choose to repent of your sin. Choose to, to live for Jesus. Choose to let your life be a light that shines in the darkness. Choose today with all your heart to love Jesus and follow Jesus and and, and put your comforts behind you. Put everything behind you for the hope of the glorious future. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.